You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here is your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Once again, great to have you listening. Wherever you're at today, Dave is not around. He is out, and hopefully he'll be back next week. Life will all be normal again. So anyways, as good a time as any to remind you, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Um, also, check out themondaychristian.com. There's lots of stuff there, blogs, articles, uh, things that other contributors to the site have created. Got some exciting upcoming videos that are going to be released in the coming weeks. And just as a little bit of teaser, they're going to be featuring Monday Christians. So everyday people who are putting their faith into action all throughout the week have some cool content creators um, creating some really cool stuff. So excited about that. Anyways, um, so Marjorie Gunno is she's the author of The Person in Psychology and Christianity. And as I shared with her, I think prior to our interview today, um, this is not in my league. I'm not a psychologist, but I so appreciate one of the things I love about this podcast is having the opportunity to go to where different people are at, uh, whether it's talking with Joel Chop and his interactions with the, the science community. Um, and then our conversation today, talking about psychology and the relationship between that and faith. And oftentimes, I think Christians have a lot of misconceptions when they think of the relationship between faith and psychology. And uh, in this interview, I think um, we cover some of those big questions, but then also just look at the positive ways that Christians can use psychology in a powerful way and kind of actually in that process, deepen their faith. So let's go ahead and get right into this interview with Dr. Marjorie Gunno. Well, hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast again. It's great to have each of you watching, listening, wherever you are at. And today on the podcast, have Dr. Marjorie Gunho on the podcast. And so, um, Marjorie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Dr. Gunho, I guess this is the last time I'll use doctor, um, but she's the professor of psychology at Kelvin University. She teaches developmental psychology and conducts research on parent-child relationships, was checking out some of your articles over the years, and just give a fascinating background. So, I'm excited for this conversation. I think it's going to be super profitable. Thank you. Well, I'll start with this obvious question. We brought you on to discuss your latest book, that The Person in Psychology. And the obvious question you always ask every any author is, why this book and why now? So let's go ahead and just start with that one. Sure. Um, why this? Well, why now? It's actually 12 years after I started. So why now is because I finally finished. But it's, so you uh, started this 12 years ago. Uh, yeah, it's, it was, it's kind of interesting. Uh, a friend of mine said, I think we should do a little bit on uh, a lot of people will, you know, write on clinical psychology and Christianity. Yeah. And he said, we really need more on developmental uh, he said, I think you should, uh, we have a program at Calvin where you can apply for a one course release to write an article or something like that. So my um, intention was to write the 30 page article. Uh, and I thought that was actually going to be a good deal that I'd get a one course release for a 30 page article. Uh, and over time, it just became really clear that I didn't know the primary sources of the theorists I was talking about. And I really 
uh, didn't have a sense of, I, I came in saying, I'm going to compare these things to the Christian worldview. Uh, and mm -hmm. it became mm -hmm. pretty clear that Orthodox Christians believe things differently than Catholics who believe things differently than, you know, Reformed Christians and Evangelicals. And um, so it really was a much bigger project than oh, I had okay. ever anticipated. I, you have me curious right there. So the differences between, so Reformed, yeah, you know, go, go on down the list. Catholic. Yeah. What were some of the big differences you noticed between the different groups? Um, well, I was um, surprised to see that, for example, Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Christians um, have a kind of more positive view of humankind mm -hmm. than um, particularly the Reformed tradition and some of the other traditions. So uh, the Catholic tradition, for example, uh, often views Adam and Eve as being kind of celestial beings who then fell to sort of what we might think of as, you know, normal level. Yep. Uh, whereas as um, some Protestants likes to say, we started out uh, kind of at a, at a base level and then we became very depraved and, you know, fell to great depths. Uh, and whereas the Orthodox, you know, tend to say we were kind of human to begin with and we made some bad choices, but we didn't become completely depraved, like, you know, many, um, many Christians will say. So for me, as a person really interested in kind of the anthropology of maybe scripture and original sin and image of God and those kinds of things, uh, it was really interesting to sort of look at how different, different Christian traditions, uh, you know, viewed people as good, bad, neutral, uh, you know, so that's just an example of how it was very informative for me to say, hey, I have to really read beyond my traditions. And I do have traditions. I have multiple right. myself, but I need to even, you know, go bigger than that, I think, to get a sense of the human person. Psychology, when you use that term, what uh, what were the different groups? How would they view that? Which group viewed it more in a positive light? Which one had more of a kind of weary approach to it? Oh, I don't know that I would sort of say a particular denomination is wary of psychology. Um, I think obviously different Christians have a uh, very different approaches to psychology. In fact, that's one of the things that I will start in my intro to psych class. I will give four different views that Christians hold towards psychology. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with what experience you have with psychology. So if you were to open up, for example, a psychology textbook in chapter one, if it's a good textbook, it will say psychology is the science of behavior and mental processes. And so we make it very clear that we are a science, we use the scientific method, but we do address some questions that kind of fall in philosophy, theology. Mm -hmm. But I really assure students pretty quickly when they come into my classroom that there's a whole lot of questions that are outside of science. And so I would never attempt to answer those with psychology. So is there yeah. a God? That is not a scientific question. You can't answer that with the scientific method. Um, you know, does your early experiences impact how you view God? Absolutely. Those, you know, we can identify patterns um, in the way people think and their experiences in the same way that you can in any other sciences. Uh, and so, you know, if you keep psychology to the way it is actually defined in a contemporary textbook, uh, then I think there's much less reason to be afraid of it. Isn't that interesting? I was just l listening to, I don't know if you ever listened to the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierley, but he he did an in exchange between Francis Collins and Richard Dawkins a couple of weeks ago. And it's fascinating because I think, and he asked Dawkins, and I forget the exact response that he gave, but basically, um, you know, 
can you not accept a, a rational an explanation for God? Um, it does it have to be on a scientific basis? And essentially, Dawkins said, "Well, yeah, I mean that that's kind of my world." And so we don't really think of it from a philosophical perspective or, or so forth, right? We uh, sometimes people tend to only have one lane through which God kind of yeah. has to reveal Himself, and if right. He doesn't reveal Himself through that lane, then you know they kind of dismiss Him, I right. guess. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important with Dawkins to realize that um, he kind of makes it part of his mission to tear down Christianity. Mm -hmm. But there are many people, for example, you know, who believe in evolution, who actually will very clearly say like um, uh, Gould is a person who has said very clearly he's, you know, I'm an evolutionist. But I if you if you think that evolution can answer the question about whether there's a God or not. Uh, I'm going to send you back to my, you know, elementary school teacher who's right. going to wrap your right. knuckles because this is absolutely outside of uh, the question of science. So it's, it's, you know, it's. I think it's helpful to realize that there are questions we can answer with science and questions we can't. Uh, we certainly want to integrate these two systems of belief, and there is a lot of area overlap, but there are some things that really you can only approach one way or the other. In preparation for this interview, I threw out a question on my Facebook. It said, what do you think is the largest misconception Christians or many Christians have of psychology? Got some interesting answers. Daryl wrote in that it starts with an S. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> uh, well, in some spellings, yeah. <laughs> uh, Tiffany, that mental illness isn't real and you can't just pray it away. Tom said their biggest misconception is that they don't need it. If more Christians would study psychology alongside theology, they would be more impactful in life and relationships. So I want you to comment on that, um, Tom's perspective, because I think that's kind of the perspective mm -hmm. that, that you share. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, for example, one of the chapters in the book, I focus on attachment theory and um, attachment theory has really helped me as I actually have a, a child uh, adopted from a, an orphanage in Eastern Europe. And I needed to kind of understand, you know, her developmental processes. Uh, and so, you know, children adopted who later in life often have a huge array of adjustment problems, you know, and I would even hear people saying things like, well, I know a child from an orphanage. I think they have their demon possessed because their behavior is so uh, wow. troubling, you know, wow. and, and so you'll hear some really strong comments, right. uh, you know, and so I think it's really important to come back and say, spiritual forces are, you know, if you're a Christian, you probably believe in spiritual forces, but there's also a whole lot of natural processes that we can document that are really going to help us understand um, people's spiritual problems. You know, so if you come from a situation where you have been uh, grown up in a lot of fear, uh, maybe with some abuse, uh, from a very young age, your brain is going to make decisions about how it's going to map itself. So um, if you think about a young child saying, well, how much of my brain will go to language development and how much of my brain will go to um, hypervigilance and, you know, how much how much will go to detecting dangerous things. Uh, and the brain is literally wiring itself according to its experiences. It's, it's wiring itself when you're very young to survive in the environment that you're in. So if you're in a very fearful environment, you're going to have a very hypervigilant brain, you know, and it's really important to understand that if you've got a child who's been in that situation, 
their behavior is really going to be motivated by extreme fear of any letting any adult control them. Mm. And if you understand, you know, even kind of the neural processes going on, you're going to have a much more comprehensive, I would say, picture of, you know, why a person might behave in a way that they do. And so mm, I think, yeah, I think just you can't, you know, there's so many things that people say, well, that is spiritual, but our spiritual life takes place on through, I mean, God works through physical means in the sense that, you know, the same neural pathways are fired when we say that we're feeling love from God and we're feeling love from our parents. It's the same neural pathways. And so, you know, you have to sort of appreciate uh, what's going on in the brain, uh, I think, in order to have a full understanding of the person. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fascinating. You know, going back to this, I'll read a comment from Trevor. He says, in regard to the question, he says, I wonder if Christians sometimes conflate psychology and pop psychology. A number of uh, Christians Mm -hmm. are familiar with their Myers-Briggs personality type or (laughs) love, love languages, but may not really respect the science of psychology. For many, psychology is uh, synonymous with therapy. Folks may assume, for example, that a Christian counselor they respect is just as qualified as a psychologist. This can be problematic when an unqualified counselor doesn't recognize the limits of his or her own training. So right. Christians that kind of think, oh, why, why are psychologists important? Why is this? How can this help me grow in my walk with yeah. God? What do you say to that? Well, I guess I would first start by saying there are many kinds of psychologists. So um, a clinical psychologist will largely focus on disorders. Uh, As a developmental psychologist, my job is to do research to document the normal pattern of development. So when do things happen? When does the brain start tailoring itself to the environment? We actually know that that happens even before birth, uh, according to the number, to the level of stress hormones in the mother's womb. Um, You know, when does the brain, uh, when do the neurons myelinate themselves so that you can expect a child to sit still in a chair? When is there enough myelination that a child can actually intend to deceive somebody? Uh, We know that really before about the age of four, Children can't really imagine, um, you know, trying to sway somebody else's opinion because they don't realize that other people think different thoughts than they think. Okay, you know, and all of these. So so this is very real applications in terms of when you can begin punish a child for lying, you know, but but this is all rooted in an understanding of the timetable of when. Uh, when you know the brain has enough uh, connections, when it has enough myelination, myelination is a coating that goes on the neurons that helps transmission go more quickly. You know these kinds of things. Uh, so, as a developmental psychologist, really my you know my task as a researcher is to say these are the things that the milestones you should expect at certain ages, and this is what sort of typical development would look like, which serves as kind of then the basis for something like clinical psychology. So how do you read that? Going incorrectly. So, so how do you do that with in partnership with obviously your Christian faith? Um, mm-hmm. Because some, I'm assuming, would would say, okay, well, you know, and you went through uh, four different authors, and then you covered evolutionary psychology: Eric Erickson, uh, John Bowlby, B.F. Skinner, and Albert Bandura. If I'm saying that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, correct. And and you you covered these these different viewpoints, and you say there's and what I loved about what you did was you said okay there's different points where I disagree with them here, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. there's points where they actually have a lot to teach, and so 
I think, you know, it sounds so basic, but I feel like that's an art that a lot of Christians struggle with because we tend to say, man, you know, I like this author, but man, they're so far off here. So I don't know if I can read them anymore. So how Mm. how do you you develop that sifting mentality where you you can just read someone and say, well, there's some I disagree with, but there's a lot here. Well, you make it sound easy and it's not, and it's never an easy process. Yeah. Um, I think, well, I think I begin with a basic assumption of human nature that um, all people are made in the image of God. And so even a non-Christian has something to teach me, or, you know, could have something to teach me. Um, I believe that God has revealed, you know, uh, his truth through all people. Uh, And so I am very open to the fact that I can learn things from other traditions, but also that I um, may have to say no to certain things. But I'm also very, very open to the awareness that um, I may not be thinking correctly. You know, and we read in, you know, I think it's Psalm 19, uh, you know, David says, you know, who can discern their own errors? Uh, You know, please reveal my hidden thoughts. Uh, and so I, I guess I try to come at it with a humble approach. I don't think that because I'm a Christian, I have everything right. And I don't think that because someone's not a Christian, they have everything wrong. Uh, and so I, I look for a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I get to any kind of um, ideas, I guess I, I, psychology is difficult because obviously we define it as the science, but it's based on theoretical ideas. And so there's always that back and forth. You know, so I do look to say, well, if a theorist says something, I say, well, can we show this empirically? Um, You know, and if if we can, then I say there's empirical evidence for this. Um, I'm always very careful to say to try to look at the breadth of the empirical evidence, because I think often Christians will say, oh, I have a scientific study uh, that shows this. It matches my belief. Mm -hmm. And we might say, yes, but there's 20 other studies that contradict this but they don't want to read those, you know? And so, I mean, as a scientist, I have to act with integrity and say, you know, what is, what is the bulk of science, you know, say in the same way that I, when I look at scripture, I try not to pick out one verse, but I say, what are the big themes? Right. right. Because clearly, clearly you've got, you know, back and forth with scripture, you know, do we, yeah, go ahead. Things in consensus, generally. Yeah. I mean, let's just be honest. I pastor for 10 years. When I go to a text, I look at lots of different commentaries. We had John Walton on the podcast mm-hmm. a few months ago, yeah. right? And so I see his take on Genesis, and then I compare it with other theologians and see their take, okay? And then you say, oh, well, what's the general consensus here? So I'm writing a book on Ecclesiastes right now, and so is okay. Solomon the author of the book? Well, okay, I mean, generally, I, I kind of think so, um, but it's not like, consensus on that. And so I think sometimes as Christians, sometimes we aren't very honest with that. And we kind of think we pick our two or three that we really (laughs) like, and we say, this is what the Bible says. But I think in doing that, that might work for us. But where it starts to break down is maybe where we teach it to other people, and then they poke holes in our argument. And then, you know, then when they realize, oh, wait, wait a second here, this is, you know, you got all these holes here and you haven't really taken care of things like, like you should or done your due diligence, I guess, right. like, like you should. Right. So, Well, I think that's also is a function of um, the environment. For professors, it's a function of the environment you work in. So many universities that are Christian will say, you know, you have to teach this and you have to believe this um, on things that there's maybe some 
room for debate on, you know, and so when I teach, I have some some leeway at Calvin, not, not on everything, but, um, you know, I always try to say to students, okay, I'm going to give you the best articles that I find on both sides of something. Hmm. And, you know, and um, if I've done a good job, at least the first couple lectures, you don't actually know where I stand because I want you to really wrestle with these things, you know, with integrity. Um, and then, you know, over time, if you want to talk to me about what I might personally believe or, you know, as, as we kind of go through a topic, I might reveal more about what I believe because I want to guide them, you know, but but I think you really have to. I mean, I feel like I can't really know something unless I have really read the best counter to what I think I believe and really wrestled with it. So I'm curious your perspective from a developmental standpoint. Yeah, I have a five three and nine month old, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking of the best way to raise them, to, to help them love and serve Jesus and, and to love others, you know, and I want them to obviously to, to do that well. Um, no, but here's where I find Christians often differ. Mm-hmm. There's one camp that would be like, well, you need to teach them. Here's what truth is. And bam, there, this is truth. Mm-hmm. And then others are more like, well, here's kind of, you know, basically to the degree of, you pick your own religion and you kind of, you know, yeah. every option's on the table. And yeah. so how do you balance that with f- forming kids, mm-hmm. right? To, you know, love and serve Jesus and teaching that in the home, but then also giving room, um, like, are there age limits here where you yeah. teach hard things and then you give them room to ask questions and debate more? Like, like how do you process that? Well, I think uh, this is where developmental psychology is helpful when we know kind of the patterns of when children want to begin to think critically. Uh, And so I think with younger children, you really give them one answer and they're looking for that. You know, um, younger children, even if you ask a question like, they might say to you, am I big? And you say, well, you're big compared to your baby sister, but you're not big compared to me. They get very frustrated because they're just making sense of the world <laughs> and they That's want true. you, they want a yes or no answer, yes. you know? Um, and I think with young kids, you do very much give them um, one answer and then you wait until they give you some signs for questions, you know, and that can vary hugely, uh, you know, when a child might ask something. So one of my kids in third grade came home and said, mom, he said, you know, I'm thinking about those days in Genesis and I just don't think they were only 24 hours. And we kind of went, oh, well, we didn't know we were ready to discuss this yet. But if you're having questions, then it's clearly time to think about that. You know, but we generally find that um, by the time kids are becoming teenagers, that's where you want to be really clear to say there are multiple views on something if there are. And you have to also be really careful to say, I don't know the answer to this one, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. well, what we find, you know, look kind of looking kind of developmentally at um, often kids from more from families who don't give them any room to doubt, um, they will often sort of outgrow their parents. And you'll see yes. kids who are 15, right. 16 um, saying, well, I see that this is a complex issue. And if you, dad, can't see that this is a complex issue and you're just only, you know, telling me I can only believe one thing, then you're not really of any help to me anymore. And you're probably wrong in these other areas. And you may be wrong on these other areas. And it really undermines kids' confidence. So, you know, I mean, as you, you see kids moving really probably into high school, 
that's mm-hmm. where you really want to say, this is a really tough issue. And I'm going to, you know, be straight up with you that this is what I believe. And I believe that as a Christian, you have to take a stand on what you believe, but I could be wrong. And, you know, and I will still love you if you decide to believe differently than me, uh, you know, and so you ha- you kind of have to be aware that um, if you go too hard line, if your kid is bright, you will often lose them in, you know, in the later years. <laughs> Yeah, this is fascinating. Several years ago, Andy Stanley did, I forget what it was called, like on the gods or something like that. The, the, the gods yeah, I never, um, that, go never um, something like the gods I I shouldn't have believed in or something like that. And, and okay. different <laughs> things where, where how we develop these false ideas of God. And one of them that he pointed out was kind of the um, the baby God, where we developed a an understanding of God, um, maybe through stories. And I've heard this n- numerous Christians that kind of, maybe strayed from the faith and then maybe come back later where they had a, maybe a third grade, second grade understanding of God through Bible stories, Mm -hmm. but it never expanded over time to tackle some of the big questions of life. And so as a result, they're still answering like complex questions they're asking in their twenties and thirties with like a Sunday school faith. Right. And, And so how do you encourage, like, I'm thinking like everyday Christians, churches, how do you encourage, um, them to work with new believers so that this doesn't happen? Well, there is a uh, one author I assign in class who talks about how if we don't update our God concept over time, we will eventually abandon that God concept. And so the God that we believe in always has to have some connection to our experience. So let me just give you an example. Um, if you were a Jewish person in the Holocaust, for example, and you believe that God was loving and God would protect you, and then your family is you know, killed in the concentration camp, you kind of have a choice. You can say, well, clearly I'm going to update my understanding of God, or I'm going to have to reject that God that simply I can't believe in anymore. You know, yep. And I think on a much smaller scale, that happens to all of us. We say, you know, um, I'm going to have to change this in order to keep believing in God. And for many people, that is super, super scary, you know, but I mean, psychologists are going to tell you that's, that's the way you live your whole life. You update your view of your wife if in order to, you know, deal with the present situation. You update, you know, your view of everything. Um, you know, and, and faith is tricky because we're often taught that if we change what we believe, we don't have enough faith or we're sinning, uh, you know, and in many, in my own case, for example, you know, it was really costly because uh, my father basically said, you will believe what I believe um, or we don't really have a relationship. So for some people, really, you know, the, oh yeah, those things can be really. What age, what age were you when that happened? Uh, well, that gets tricky. (laughs) Um, Wow. Yeah. Well, um, my parents split when I was seven and Mm. it's been, um, you know, I would say from maybe seven, I started struggling with issues. Uh, I would say a lot of my own Christian life, uh, or my, maybe through my teen years, early adult years were trying to figure out what I believed about gender. My parents mm. split largely over um, what rights a man has is if his wife isn't submissive uh, in a way that yeah. he thinks she should be. Huh. Um, and so I began questioning, uh, you know, at one point, 
my mother, uh, my mother who tries very, very hard to live according to scripture. She, after she left my father, she believed that she could not remarry, that biblically this was wrong. Um, and so, but she was also told at our church that because she was not under the authority of a man, she was not allowed to help with the high school youth group. She was dangerous. Oh, you really? know? Wow. Wow. Um, and at that point in high school, I said, um, I will never set foot in that church again because she, you know, she, and she was doing everything biblically, you know, in her mind to, you know, to yep. obey scripture. Right. And they were saying, really, there's no place for you here, even in the leadership of the youth. Uh, you know, and so wow. she had the sense at that point to realize that if she didn't let me update the theology in which I was being raised, that I was probably going to abandon God. You know, yeah. so we moved to a different denomination, you know. And so, I mean, I think even now, you know, to even even into my adulthood, you know, with my dad, it's it's a pretty psychologically costly thing in that, you know, I'll say, I'm not going to call you if we're going to fight about this. And then he'll say, well, don't bother to call, you know? And yeah, so he, right. in, in his mind, I must believe exactly what he believes um, for us to really have an, a relationship. And so I think that's, what's tricky about uh, faith is that, you know, for a lot of students that I work with, if they come from a real more kind of fundamentalist background, um, it's, you can't even really necessarily think clearly because there's so much pressure not to, you know, to, 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 not to think differently than your parents, because you may in fact get kind of rejected from the family. Yeah. Well, and if not the, the hard line in the sand, like you had, then it's, it's subtle rejection, right? Yeah. It, it's it. And that, that can be like, likewise painful and yeah, no, 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 that that's so fascinating because uh, I'm sure there's so many in our audience that can connect with that on, on so, some level or another. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a painful, well, it gets to, I guess, a question that, you know, what do you do as a Christian, right? If you feel you're really right on a subject and you take any hot button issue, right? <laughs> you feel yeah. you're really right and the subject is very, very important. Yeah. And you feel like if someone does not line up with you on this subject, that they are doing irreparable harm to themselves, to others. And so you really can't build a point of connection. I mean, yeah. how do you help people process when they have that framework? Well, I think over time I have just, I mean, I have different strategies that I use. So one thing I will say is I will ask myself, is the issue about which we are disagreeing really critical to the Christian faith? So is it something in the Apostles' Creed, which all Christians all over the world you know, are going to believe? Is this foundational? Or is this something that maybe scripture could be interpreted to have some ambiguity on? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I try also, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I kind of wrestle with, um, you know, lots of scripture tells us to try to live at peace with all people. And First uh, Thessalonians says, try to live a quiet life, you know. Right. Um, and sometimes I just have to shut up, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, but, but, but it's, it's, and I guess as a psychologist too, I just try really hard to be aware that I could be wrong, but also say maybe I have to live my life in the way that I have to live my life and try to get along with you, even if you believe differently on some of these non-confessional things. I mean, maybe a practical one would be egalitarian and complementarian. And for those listening, mm -hmm. not maybe familiar with the terms, in terms of like in regard to church, uh, egalitarian more... Um, 
women in leadership and complementarian more there's more um, uh, uh, the men are the elders and they're the lead pastors so forth and uh, i tended to be more complementarian back in the day more egalitarian today um, mm-hmm. but i can definitely see how someone would arrive at a complementarian perspective like mm-hmm. i can that there's to me there's logical arguments that arrive at that and so for, for example in that case I'm a little bit torn because I think, you know, the uh, women are often deprived of positions. And that to me is like really painful for them. Right. And, and painful to watch when that happens. And so on one hand, it's like, wow, that's, that's not right. That's not cool. Um, but on, on the same hand, I can respect someone that they have these views that they feel are best in alignment with scripture and realizing that I could be wrong on this subject. And so, mm-hmm. And, and then you kind of have the awkward balance where you want to you want to build points of connection and relationship, but then also realizing that there are you know quite big differences that we have here that impact the lives of in this case women and, and how they lead. Yeah. So, I mean, what what do you do when you arrive yeah. at situations like that? Um, well, that's obviously that's definitely my own journey um, from being raised in a very hierarchical situation towards, you know, moving towards um, an egalitarian view. Um, one thing I guess that has helped me is I try again, not to pick a particular verse, but to look at the context, the whole, the whole theme of scripture, the whole context yes. of scripture, yes. you know? So I say, That's so, so if I look historically to say, how has, how have God's people treated women? We have a pretty clear trajectory from the Old Testament to the New Testament of um, God's people being kind of, you might say, ahead of the curve. So, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, if, you know, where surrounding cultures, you could go conquer another society and then immediately take their women and do whatever you wanted with them. Uh, In the Old Testament, God says, if you bring women into your household, you have to give them 30 days before you are allowed to sleep with them. You know, you have to give them grieving time. Okay, so it's kind of ahead of the curve a little bit in the Old Testament. As much as we look back and say these things seem horrible, they were nonetheless a little bit ahead of the culture. Okay, you know, and then we move into the New Testament. We see Paul responding to new liberties women are taking, you know, but it seems like the church has historically been a little bit ahead of surrounding culture on recognizing the um, gifts of women and the role of women. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then when we get to this point now where we say now the church is behind culture, maybe we better think about what the whole trajectory has been, you know, and, and should we, should we maybe be concerned about kind of going backwards? And so, you know, I mean, that, that may help somebody. It may not. I also try to say, well, why do we have these hierarchical differences? Is it, you know, a result of the fall? The way I read Genesis 3, it's a punishment. And so should we, you know, would, would we say to a man, well, you're supposed to till the soil. So you, we now should, in fact, um, not let you use advanced farming equipment because your job is to stay in this punishment and till the soil, you know, by the sweat yeah, of your yeah, brow? Or yeah. would you say, okay, if you can overcome this effect, should you do so? You know, and so I guess because I read the early chapters of Genesis as um, I view this as a result of the fall. 
then I say I believe that Christ is trying to move us in a more egalitarian direction. But I mean, yeah. I certainly, I certainly know Christians who if, differ. If you, you went know? one to one, you say this verse, this verse, you're going to lose that argument every time because people are like, "Well, no, I like this verse better," or this fits the yeah. context. But to me, yeah. to me, the challenge—not that you lose the argument every time, maybe that's overstating it—but but, but it, it, it's it's that's often how people only look at the scripture. I fear is I've got my verses, you've got yours, and well, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. But yeah. my wife and I, shameless uh, plug, but we do is called the Story of God podcast, and okay. and where we look at scripture together, and that's the big thing for me is is looking at the story of God that is transcended throughout human history. I'm reading a fascinating book right now on, on the early, early, um, how Christianity shaped culture in a positive way. Mm -hmm. You look back on things like infanticide, right. And ways that Christians stepped up and shaped culture, it, it shifted. Yeah. And we had, we had Mike Bird on the podcast a few weeks ago, I think, and great theologian. And, and he, he, um, poses this question that's probably going to get me into trouble with some in our audience here, but he, he poses this question to his class at the beginning of each uh, semester. says, do we have a better, I forgot exactly how he phrases it, but do we have a better ethic today than in the, in, in the times of like the New Testament? And his point with that, some people like, well, no, we need to just, that doesn't make sense. But his point was progression where, you know, slavery, I think would be an example mm -hmm. that when the Apostle Paul is mm -hmm. working in that context, you know, to liberate tons of slaves right away might have brought them to um, been disastrous in their case, but the the progression should lead to the abolition, right? Like it should, and right. and that happens in, in different ways. So, anyways, we got sidetracked, but I think this was, yeah, I think. It, it oh, I will add if you want. I just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please, please. You know, I used to be. I would say there was a time in my life where I really had, um, after having come out of a sort of hierarchical abusive background, um, that was just, I could only, only entertain egalitarianism. And I would say that over time I've regained a little bit of sympathy, I guess, for complementarianism in some settings. For example, um, there's a very interesting book that, um, addresses this from both sides and it, and the author says, um, the best argument I've heard is that um, some men need sort of to be told you're the only one who can teach the Sunday school class in order to keep them involved in the church. And so some wives would say from a very pragmatic standpoint, I want to give my husband a role to keep him in the church, you know, and so and in different cultures, I have a, I have a, you know, I have a, um, a cousin who was in a missionary and he spoke about how if he had, you know, moved too fast on the progression right, um, right. in this Hispanic culture, he would have completely lost all respect from the people he was trying to minister yeah. to, yeah. you know? And so, yes, I, I guess I would say I would see a progression, but there are all those cultural considerations that very much impact exactly. the rate at which we can progress. Well, and doesn't that get to the heart of some of the, the uh, dialogue breakdown that we sometimes have? I often think in the U.S. and Canada, um, the difference between city Christian living and, and rural Christian living. I mean, um, there seems to be a sharp divide in value. <laughs> and politically, obviously, we know that's that's generally the case. Absolutely. But one of the things is how you wrestle with subjects. So the things you're wrestling, like when we lived in Toronto, right, um, whether it's homelessness, um, um, high numbers of immigrants, and then being in close proximity to each other. There's yeah. lots of factors at play. So when COVID hit, right? how someone in the, the city and in tight proximity to someone 
might see it very differently from someone mm. who's in a more rural community and they're like, well, what's the deal, right? Yeah. And, and I think not taking those nuances into consideration gets us into all kinds of, we, we don't, we fail to un, not understand each other because we're living in very different cultural contexts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, real quickly here. I mean, the, yeah. one of the things you mentioned in the book, you know, you mentioned Eric Erickson, John Bowlby, B.F. Skinner, Albert Bandura. Um, what are the biggest things that you've learned, big aha moments maybe in your life that you've learned from key psychologists that have transformed, challenged the way you've thought about how you mm. apply your faith? <laughs> You want me to do this in 10 minutes? <laughs> maybe, maybe like two and a half. No, right? yeah, two and a half. Thanks. Um, I would say, well, I ha I guess I had a big aha moment with Eric Erickson simply to realize that he was, in fact, uh, a person of faith because I didn't know any um, sort of grand theorists, big Christians who actually, you know, that's not how, that's not how he's presented in textbooks. And so it was really helpful for me as a Christian um, to say, hey, there are big name psychologists who, in fact, um, have a lot of value for, you know, it, it's it's a little unclear exactly whether his faith was orthodox, but he was very sympathetic, at least mm -hmm. towards, you know, faith. So that was helpful for me. Kind and of Eric Erickson, just a quick on. snippet of who he was. Uh, yeah, Eric Erickson was um, sort of, uh, you have Sigmund Freud, who most people know, uh, and then Eric Erickson came under the the training of Sigmund Freud, and I would say revised Freud's ideas so that they became very helpful. Which most of us now are don't view Freud as um, we, we view we view appreciate him for some of his from his really broad statements like childhood really matters, uh, you, how you how you treat kids really, really matters. Uh, but a lot of his specifics, we'd say, eh, you know, he's kind of crazy or wrong on that. Whereas Eric Erickson, in fact, uh, gives us a, a real working model that incorporates the unconscious. So uh, Erickson is very helpful. He's a pretty big name. Um, I think also for me, um, reading B.F. Skinner was pretty helpful. Uh, in my own life, I was raised in simultaneously one foot in kind of a, a more evangelical environment and one foot in more of a reformed environment. And so evangelicals are going to place a big emphasis on I decide uh, if I'm a Christian, et cetera. And reformed Christians are going to place more emphasis on God's providence, God calls you, God's election. Uh, and so there came a point in my life being raised in those traditions when I really had to wrestle with that. And uh, it's kind of interesting that um, wrestling with B.F. Skinner, who claims that we have no free will, um, helped me to kind of see how, um, how much of our life God may be orchestrating to bring us to a particular end. Mm. So, you know, so I still have I solved this problem no, but it is a little bit interesting that reading a secular psychologist who actually Skinner didn't have much use for God, um, but his demonstrations of how much the environment does shape who we are and what we believe uh, kind of helped me to understand um, that I might not have much free will and, and that God was really orchestrating my life to, you know, an extreme degree through environmental forces and things like that. Uh, so that was, that was an important read for me, but that's kind of. To, to me, it's like, <laughs> so. if, yeah. If I were to use like a comparison, a uh, crude comparison, maybe is, is like, 
when I was reading, uh, I had to study Greek and Hebrew, right? And okay. uh, when I was in college, and what was it like? Well, it was a little bit like you might say reading the Bible in color because you see, oh, okay, these nuances that kind of comes alive. And to me, psychology and different things like this do a similar thing where it's it's like, oh, oh, this makes this first come more alive. Like this, right. it makes you understand this and, and, it, yeah. and it, it helps you appreciate the beauty of God and his creation, even at a, at a greater level. Um, yeah. I mean, challenges, dangers, uh, where do people maybe go off the ra- rails in regard to psychology? <laughs> in in 1.5 minutes, of course. In 1.5 minutes. <laughs> um, well, I think anytime you accept things uncritically, you, of course there is a danger. So again, for me personally, I kind of come back to, does this contradict the Apostles' Creed, the the fundamentals of Christianity, Mm -hmm. then it would be something I would need to reject. But if it doesn't, then maybe I can learn from it and I can see things in new ways. Any Um, examples of that real quick, like of like something you've had to like, that a lot of psychologists would maybe consider. And then you think, ah, oh, I can't, I'm not with you on that one. Uh, well, I mean, I think, okay, well, evolutionary psychology, for example, gets pretty tricky because there are many Christians who believe that God used some pro- some processes of evolution to develop the world, but they believe God is orchestrating this. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I would call that evolutionary psychology with maybe a lowercase e. But there are some people who are evolutionary psychologists, a particular group out of the University of Santa Barbara with a capital E, people like Steven Pinker, these kinds of things, who are uh, pretty adamant, sort of like Dawkins, to say, um, you know, this has happened and it's all by chance. You know, and so there I have to say, well, if you're going to claim it's all by chance, then I have to say, no, I can't accept some of the things you're saying because um, I can accept some of the physical processes, um, but I can't accept that this is without purpose, without intention, that there's not God orchestrating Mm. these things. So, you know, so, so, you know, if a person blatantly says, you know, something like, there's no purpose in the universe, these kinds of things, then obviously I'm going to push back. Yep. Yeah. For Christians, I'm just thinking, oh, we had a good conversation last week with Jewel Chop, and he talked mm-hmm. about um, uh, connection. He did a lengthy, like six year project on the doctrine of creation, interviewed and brought in all these different people. And, and um, to, you know, uh, it was kind yeah. of an interesting and a mix between theologians and scientists, right? And they right. critique each other and share with each other. And But one of the things he said that stuck with me, he, you know, that, that for people that, you know, especially like scientists at all different levels or a high school science teacher, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, that come to church and they sit there week after week and they have these contradictions between what they sense, you know, like is right and is in their yeah. profession and then what they hear maybe from the stage or other Christians talking around them. And I, I've got to guess that maybe in psychology with psychologists, but, but people that just aren't necessarily psychologists, but have a, a curiosity in the subject, they have a lot of these views that they're like, Man, this is feels so out of alignment with some of the teaching, maybe it's Christian counseling, so forth that yeah. that I hear. Um, how how would you encourage Christians like that to begin better conversations um, and to um, um, you know be able to to use that and in, in kind of like um, not just you know 
keep their faith tucked away, but actually allow psychology to yeah. form and shape the way they live in the community? Um, I guess I would say read a lot and, you know, maybe encourage book groups. I often find that people are scared of psychology until they read it and then they find that they can relate to a lot of things in it and they may have to reject some things as we do in any science, yeah. you know, but, um, but I think simply not being scared of it and reading it is, is really, really critical. Uh, yeah. That's not really answering your question very well. Um, I think also, um, even if you're not um, reading psychology, just, you know, read different, read, I would say, read Christians who have wrestled with the issue that you're wrestling with. And, hmm. and you know, and say to people, give me the best pro and the best con that you can find, because I want to read the best. Um, I always find that articles or readings that lay out multiple sides are the most helpful to me. So uh, early in my life, I, I read a book called The Meaning of Millennia, uh, and it had four views on the millennium. And when they were all laid out systematically by the best spokesperson from each, you know, each view, I was able to then make some decisions. Um, there's a book, for example, called Origins, which is super helpful uh, by um, Lauren and Deborah Harzma, which says, okay, there are basically eight views of Genesis one, and you know you can and you can read through them, and they're they're fairly, um, you know they're they're associated with BioLogos, and they are uh, they try to be somewhat objective, but I think you really have to say what's the best presentation of each of these things, you know, and, mm. and work with that so that and but but really look to Christians who have wrestled with this question, whatever question it is, even yeah. if they're not necessarily from your own tradition. Yeah. No, no, I, I think that's that's huge. And I think that's where the breakdown occurs, because even if you look at an opposing view and you still say, ah, you know what, I, I still don't, I'm not going to go there. I, it, it further strengthens to me your faith. Right. Right. Because it's like, I mean, one of the ways I, I've strengthened my faith so much is by talking with people of different religions, mm -hmm. um, because that challenges me. And I think, oh, okay, so that's the why we believe this. And it makes yeah. it come more alive. So, well, yeah. I've taken up too much of your time, but good. Um, thank you so much for coming on, taking some time to tackle this subject. Um, best places for people to follow you online. Um, <laughs> of course, pick up the person in psychology, but uh, where are you on Twitter, Facebook? What, you know, the... I am not. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'm I, disappointed. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, sorry. Uh, you know, you could go to the Calvin website and look at my Vita and my publications, <laughs> but, um, you know, I just, a person can lose themselves in a lot yeah. of online media, I find. Um, <laughs> and so, and I actually get uh, some real negative, some, since some of my research actually is on physical discipline, I get really creepy people who email me and say things like, oh, you're you know, you, you research spanking, would you like to be an adult spanking group? And I'm like, no, what? <laughs> you know, and, and so I find that just how taxing it is to deal with yeah. those kind of creepy people. Um, I don't have much of an, you, you have enough on your presence. plate. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, pick up the book, uh, the person in psychology. Thank so yeah. thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Good. Thank you so much. Ezra. for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.